Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books and Terrorism and Organized Crime. Today we're talking to Declan Hill about his new book, The Fix, which is about soccer and organized crime. This is uh, quite an amazing journey to go through, listening to the story of the massive extent of corruption by organized crime groups in professional and also amateur sport to support uh, illegal gambling and fixing games effectively. Uh, Declan Hill is both a investigative journalist and an academic. Uh, this is the investigative journalist version of the book, as you'll hear him discuss in the interview. He's also producing a much more academic version of the study, but uh, this is a, quite a rollicking read. Um, I often wonder how he got to do what he did, and I can suggest that no university ethics committee will allow him to do what he did in order to gather some of the information he has in this book. It's quite a horrifying book in the sense of the extent of organised crime that he will discuss here, and it may shatter your illusions about um, honesty in sport. It's well worth a read. I just want to point out one thing, though. During uh, the second half of the interview, we had a problem with the line, and you'll have some difficulty hearing. You can still understand what Declan is saying, but there will be some difficulty in hearing uh, the conversation at that point, but the problem disappears quite quickly. Um, Enjoy the interview. Welcome to New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. I'm your host, Mark Locks, from Brisbane in Australia. Today we're talking to Declan Hill about his new book, The Fix, Soccer and Organised Crime. Uh, now, Declan is in the United States today, and uh, what we do, Declan, uh, first of all, well, hello, Declan, how are you? I'm, I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate uh, coming on to your program and, and, and speaking with people who may not be aware of the book and may not be aware of what I consider is the most serious problem facing sport today. Thank you very much for being on and thank you for putting up with all of our technical difficulties we've had today to try and get <laughs> this conversation working. Not but uh, look, um, to get the interview started, uh, let's just hear about yourself and how what your history is and how you came to write this book because you actually had a research history that I'm very jealous of and that was doing a PhD at Oxford. Well, it, it, it actually, uh, my interest in organized crime and sports starts uh, a number of years before I went to Oxford. It was when I was an investigative journalist for a program called The Fifth Estate with CBC Television, which I think is roughly the, the equivalent of Four Corners in Australia. That's correct, uh, yes. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a longer term, more intensive look at, uh, at uh, news items, uh, current affairs and investigative uh, programs. And I was working with some colleagues on a program showing the links between Russian mafia chiefs, really prominent guys in the Russian mafia, and very prominent hockey players in, the, in what we call the National Hockey League, which is our big ice hockey league over here in North America. And um, uh, I was having dinner after the interview with a guy that the FBI and U.S. Congress at that time had identified as the, quote, head of the Russian mafia. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, you know, do, do you like hockey? And he said, yeah, I, I like hockey because he had very uh, key relations with a, with a huge star in, in the league at that time. But he said, you know, I really love football. 
And then he carried on to tell the story of how he was at the 1994 VVIP box at the FIFA World Cup final between Brazil and Italy in Sacramento, uh, excuse me, in Pasadena, um, and uh, sitting too along from Sepp Blatter and, and Jose Havelange, or Yao Havelange. And, uh, you know, that's a bit like being at, you know, the St. Pope's, you know, St. Peter's Basilica during Easter Sunday and too along yeah. from the Pope. I mean, you don't get, in terms of symbolism, much more prominence than that in, in international football. And, and so I thought two things. I thought one is, I really hope I get out of this restaurant alive. And two, if I do, this is a really interesting story as to what this man is doing in is doing at the center of international football. And uh, so I did, thank goodness, got out of uh, that restaurant. And that was really my interest in the links between organized crime and international soccer. Right. right. I mean, I've got to say, when I was reading this book, I was completely overwhelmed with the scope of the corruption that you discuss. I've done, most of my research has been on corruption and the crossover between policing, especially in organized crime. But when I read yes. this, I thought we're really playing on the small stakes compared to what you discuss in the book. Well, look, quite frankly, this is the most serious threat to the credibility of sport that we've seen in at least 100 years. This is the globalization of the sports gambling world. There are now fixers who've basically destroyed most of sport in Asia. And I'll return to that in a second because that's a big statement. And I, I, I've got to make sure our listeners understand why I say those things. Uh, those fixers are now traveling around the world and they are fixing games. You know, I was talking with some German colleagues. They fix games in the under 19 leagues of Germany. That's under 19. I want to repeat that again. Mm. That's 17 and 18 year olds. And their game is being fixed by not only German Croatian fixers, but guys living in Asia. So there's a network of fixing around the world for these teenagers. And then it goes all the way up to the world cup. So, uh, let me take a step back because, again, those are pretty extraordinary things for our listeners to hear. There, there are a couple of things they need to know. What, one is there are some honorable exceptions. There are some uncorrupted sports in Asia, but they genuinely are the honorable exception. And I beg anyone who listens to this podcast, if that sounds like an extraordinary statement, please go check anything I say on Google, you know, just punch in the stuff as this is going on and you'll see what I mean. So start off with uh, Japanese sumo wrestling. Uh, sumo has had a history that goes back, depending on who you listen to, either three or six or 900 years. But what is known is that there's a national championship of sumo wrestling and that, su and that championship has only been canceled twice in the history of sumo. Once, was in 1944 when the U.S. Air Force was blitzing uh, Tokyo and Osaka and the uh, Japanese cities. The second one was last year when it was discovered that key elements in the Yakuza or Japanese mafia were fixing sumo wrestling. And it was widely reported the texts going back and forth between the prominent wrestlers and the Yakuza chieftains as to which uh, bouts they should throw and which they should not was revealed. So that, mm. that gives you a sense of the symbolism, Mark, where you have you know, the, the blitz, the U.S. Air Force blitz, and this extent of organized crime and fixing is responsible for the, you know, only the two 
mm. cancellations of sumo wrestling. Now, if that was just sumo wrestling, well, okay, fair enough. But you've had half a dozen South Korean athletes who've committed suicide in the last 12 months because there's so much fixing in their football, the basketball, powerboat racing. And crikey, they've even got, uh, they've even got a league of video game players. Mm. <laughs> and these guys are yeah. going to fix that. <laughs> You know, uh, check out Taiwanese baseball. Uh, Taiwanese baseball started in the early 90s with 13 teams. They've had to kick nine of the teams out of their league. They're down to four because <laughs> there's been so much fixing. You know, each of these teams has been thrown out. Chinese soccer is a national embarrassment. And that's not the words of Declan Hill. That's words of Hu Jintao, one mm. of the most prominent politicians in China. Who in 2009, they launched an investigation. They arrested over 200 people in Chinese soccer from uh, the president of the Chinese Football Association all the way down to the physiotherapist at a couple of these clubs, including players, referee, club owners. Mm. And at one point, as I said, they, they had arrested the, the, the president of the Chinese Football Association. They put a replacement in to kind of run the league and make sure things were going on. And, and five months later, they go, Crikey, or whatever the Chinese say is crikey. They go, you know, that guy's corrupt as well. We got to arrest him. So not only did they arrest the first president, they arrest the replacement guy that they put in. I mean, it's just like the stories of corruption in Asian sport are just like to a Westerner, to an Australian, they're just like they 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 set you back so much. I'll give you one more story, but I really could take up our entire podcast just swapping these stories. The head of the Indonesian Soccer Association. So, you know, we've now moved completely on to another part of Asia. It's no longer East Asia. It's now, you know, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, one of the most populous countries in that area. The president of the Indonesian Football Association isn't just suspected of being corrupt. That's pretty normal in Indonesia. He's not just arrested with corruption, which is pretty rare. He's not just charged. He's not just sent to trial. He's not just convicted of corruption, but he actually serves two years in an Indonesian prison cell for corruption. And, and you've got to be really corrupt mm. to get convicted of corruption in Indonesia. Like it, oh, you've got to be really bad. <laughs> now, Mark, at no time during that period, you know, arrest, charging, sentencing, trial, or the two years in the Indonesian prison cell, does the president of the Indonesian Football Association give up being the president of the Indonesian Football Association? <laughs> so they weren't mutually exclusive. You could still be a crook and still be president. He ran the Football Association from his prison cell. It's so amazing. I, so I, when I say there are very few uncorrupted Asian sports, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I want to assure our listeners this isn't just hyperbole. It's not conjecture. It's not sensationalism. It is controversial. But check out, you know, check out Singaporean football. Check out Malaysian football. Check out the disasters, the fixing disasters in Vietnam. Check out, you know, I think every Australian knows Pakistani cricket. Well, I was going to say Indian and Pakistan cricket are the most well-known ones over here. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, from, uh, you know, Lahore West, uh, East – it's a disaster. There are a few exceptions. There are a few sports leagues that are uncorrupt, but, the, but they are mostly corrupt. Mm. What's happened is that with the globalization of the sports gambling market, Asian sports fans, they're not stupid. And they're saying, you know, sort this. We're, we're, we're going to turn our attention to Australian rules, football, 
or New Zealand rugby or uh, European football. We're going to follow other sports that are uncorrupted. And yeah. so that's why you, you go down, you know, the streets of Beijing and you'll see Manchester United shirts or Houston Rockets or, you know, you know, teams from Melbourne. Guys will be wearing their shirts because yeah. they think that the, that, that Western leagues, be it in Australia or America or Europe, are uncorrupted. Well, I teach in Singapore, as I mentioned to you before, yes. and um, when I talk to the police officers I teach about soccer, yes. I used to say, does anyone follow the local league? And they used to say to me, well, no, we don't. We only follow the English league. And I assumed it was because the local league wasn't very good until I read your book and yes. found the reason that you're just saying it's because no one has any faith in the local league. Yeah, and, 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 and the local league used to be extraordinarily popular. It's pretty difficult to overstate how much Singaporeans and Malaysians uh, like to beat each other at, at sport, particularly football. I mean, they, you know, it's even more intense than New Zealanders and Australians. Mm. So when the Malaysian teams would come into Singapore, there would be upwards of 50,000, 60,000 people in the stadium you know, to watch the Singapore team try to beat the Malaysians. That's gone. Mm. You'd be lucky to get a thousand to two thousand in a Singapore football stadium, regardless of the game, because it's just regarded as so corrupt. And Singapore, by the way, is a, as you know very well, is a pretty uncorrupt, oh yes, uncorrupt country and, and and society. But in that particular industry of sports, because of the gambling, because of the fixing, it is it is a nightmare and a disaster. So the same guys who've corrupted. Asian sport are now going around the world. And they're now, um, in, in part due to my book, in part just due to raised awareness of the, this issue, there are now over 60 national police investigations in the world uh, into this. They range from Guatemala, where two of their top players have just been uh, banned for life from for fixing games. Uh, South Africa, where the national team played five friendly matches uh, before the 2010 World Cups. Uh, cup tournament, four of those matches were fixed, um, down, as I said, to under-19 games in um, uh, Germany, uh, Norwegian games, uh, Finnish games, you know, I mean, it's just, it goes around the globe, it literally does. And um, we haven't mentioned Africa yet, too, which you spend a fair bit of time talking about the African leagues as well, and their well, involvement in World Cup games. Exactly, and this is the second thing, this is that, you know, uh, if people have been listening to the podcast, I'm saying games at the World Cup have been fixed. And that, you know, excuse me, you know, that is a truly huge statement to make. Mm. And um, I remember when the fixers told me, and, and this is in the book, of course, when they told me that, I thought these guys are, you know, this must be the Asian Baron Munchausen, or if mm. you excuse the Canadian term, these guys must be the biggest bullshitters in Asia. <laughs> and, and I very, very, you know, you don't talk badly to organized crime guys, as I'm sure you know. And I very politely said, look, I'm sorry, I, I think you can fix the Asian leagues, but I just don't think you can fix the World Cup. And they said, okay, watch us. Mm. And, and, and so the third part of the book is, is really about that. And, and, and the key piece of information you need to filter that through is the fact that most African teams, when they're playing at these big international football tournaments, the World Cup or the Olympics or whatever, don't get paid. Right. So the African players who are good, very good, they're not, they're not Brazilians, but they're really good. You know, on a good day, they will beat Australia, the, uh, England, uh, you know, 
give France, Germany a, a, a tough run for their money. They're running into a stadium that's sold out. It's yeah. being broadcast to literally billions of people around the world in this sponsorship from some of the richest companies in the world. And these lads are thinking to themselves, someone's making an awful lot of money here, and it ain't me. And I'm the guy that's playing. And I don't want to suggest, by the way, that all African teams fix or all African players fix. But enough of them have been approached by these fixers that it's very suspect. Let, let me give you just one example of the exploitation that an African player has to go through. Nigeria, the 2010 World Cup. And by the way, I'm not suggesting the Nigerian team fixed, but I am suggesting it uh, after your listeners listen to this story, they would wonder, they, they will not wonder why they might be tempted to. And again, I'm not suggesting that they did fix. <clears throat> Most teams, when they go to the World Cup, uh, bring uh, you know, 15 to 20 support staff, be it a chef, be it physiotherapist, goalkeeping coach, coach, assistant coach, you know, scouts, etc. The Nigerians showed up with 153 people. Mm. Now, the players were about to play the three biggest games of their lives against some, you know, the top teams in the world. They were booked by FIFA into five-star hotel. Somebody of those 153 people canceled the booking of those players, rebooked them all in a two-star hotel next to the highway, and kept the money. That <laughs> they got from from the five star to the two star, just put it in their pockets. The right. Nigerian boys, excuse me, the Nigerian team still hasn't been paid. So mm. I, I, again, I'm not suggesting the Nigerian guys fixed, but I, I think now your listeners can start to go, oh, hang on a second. Under those circumstances, I, I could understand why a fix may occur at these big international football tournaments. Mm. Mm. But it wasn't just. Asia either. I mean, you do discuss European teams and, and British teams in yeah, the book. Look, uh, uh, look, what's happened in, in uh, Europe is there's going to be a low burn corruption for years. Um, one of the things that I discuss in detail in the book is, is the sex lives of referees during Champions League games. And uh, it's so frequent that the Referees and lines officials and UEFA officials are bribed with high-class prostitutes. Uh, that it doesn't happen in every game. It doesn't happen with every team. It, you know, it doesn't even happen the majority of time. But it happens so frequently that no one is surprised when it happens. Mm. Um, and my sources for this, you know, I, again, this is an extraordinary story. If you're not familiar with my work, are referees who've been in the Champions League up to and including the uh, head of the wafer referee uh, uh, committee who used to say, if you're going to accept bribes, make sure they're very small and very expensive. Um, you know, so this, and, and by the way, again, I'm not suggesting that every team or every league or everything, you know, but, but, but it happens so frequently that one referee who'd, who'd uh, done these things said, you know, we used to show up at the hotel at three o'clock. We'd look at our watches and we said, the girls will be here by four thirty. <laughs> so you have that toleration of corruption. I mean, again, up until the late nineties, the way referees at champions league games got paid was the host team, be it Juventus or AEK Athens or Olympic de Marseille would hand them, a packet of cash. Like, mm. 
Like, how, how long does it take to figure out <laughs> that's going to be a problem? That's I mean, right. really, you know. <laughs> so you had, and, and they eventually changed it. UEFA changed it after one of the Swiss referees was organizing a match-fixing ring, um, uh, because he was a gambling addict, and they they finally made a few of these you know kind of superficial changes. So what's happened is that these Asian fixes that identify in the book have linked up with a lot of these corrupt guys. And they've started, it's as if they've put injected steroids into a normally corrupt place. So, um, you know, one of the, one of the places where the Asian guys have touched is Italy. And, um, uh, you know, as most of our listeners know, there've been mass arrests in the Italian league. Mm. Uh, not a single Asian match fixer, however, has been arrested. But they've arrested a lot of high prominent players. Uh, they've discussed the the gambling habits of Gigi Buffon and uh, excuse me, uh, Gianluca Buffon, the, the the goalkeeper for the national team. They've discussed a, you know a number of these things. What what most journalists have missed is that over half the Italian teams are now under police investigation, and <laughs> what we have is a business model of corruption. And if you if you step back from your morality for a second, this is how it works, and you'll understand that it makes good sense, economic sense. I don't like it, I don't agree with it in any way, but it makes economic sense. If you were a team that isn't going to challenge for the top of your division, you as a dodgy club owner sit down at the beginning of the season and you look at your 30 or 34 games that you're going to play, and you say, okay, we're going to try to win these 20 to 25 games and we will lose these eight to 10 games and we'll gamble knowing that we're going to lose those games and we'll make so much money from those eight to 10 games that we know we're going to lose mm. that we'll make more money from those games than we will from the rest of the season. Yep. So they don't have to rely on winning the championship to keep going. Yeah. 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 And uh, look, I'm, We've got a lot in this book I'd like to talk about, um, but first of all, you might want to explain, even in financial terms, how big this industry is. It's it's very, very difficult to give an accurate estimate, and, and I generally um, caution people, because I've heard a lot of people out in the media claiming it's now a $1 trillion industry. It is not $1 trillion industry. It is hundreds of billions of dollars, but it's not trillions. And the reason why I, I, I start by, by all these caveats is it's kind of like the drug industry. Uh, again, as our listeners know, the drug industry, uh, illegal, obviously, and it gets inflated anytime anybody wants to you know, write a grant application. Any law enforcement people or police officers want to write a grant application, they make, they make it seem like the drug market's huge. The most accurate estimate that I can get is from a foreign policy magazine estimate by a guy that knows the industry very well. And he reckons it's somewhere close to 456 billion US dollars. Now, to put that in context, the Asian steel industry is roughly 110 billion dollars. Mm. So you've got an industry that's four times larger. Now, that's counting casinos, it's counting lotteries, it's counting numbers, it's counting legal and illegal. Most gambling in Asia is illegal. Uh, World Lottery Association reckons that the total illegal gambling uh, market is somewhere close to 90 billion 
uh, dollars. So you could see there's a there's a fair amount of, of fluctuation in those figures. But but I would be comfortable saying that, that we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. So it's certainly up there with international drug trafficking as a serious organized crime industry. Uh, look, it, it's actually uh, it's a growth industry for organized crime because uh, again, you know, I'm talking to an expert here. You know, you know this. Uh, most people. Uh, look at the drug industry and they say, well, you can buy a kilo of cocaine on the streets of Bolivia for, I don't know, 100 bucks, and you can sell it on the streets of Melbourne for 10,000 or, you know, 2,000, and look at that markup. Well, the fact is the matter that nobody in the drug trade ever takes the ca- ever takes the drug all the way from Bolivia to no. the streets of, of Melbourne. They, they, they'll get it, and, 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 and in the drug trade, They'll deal with all kinds of really vile and dangerous sociopaths who would kill them in a blink of an eye. And so it's very dangerous and it's, it's a dirty industry. And if you get caught, you get put in jail for a long time and you know, they throw away the key most of the time. And, and, and your markup, if you're really lucky, is two to three times your original investment. Mm-hmm. Match fixing, on the other hand, um, if you can get it right – you know, there was a fix in Finland in their first division. A Chinese uh, fixer uh, bought a team for about uh, 300,000 euro back in 2005. And uh, it seems like a lot of money. Um, but he, the first game, he promised big changes. And he brought in a whole bunch of other players. And they lost their game 8 nothing. Yeah. Now, if, if they had bet on that score or above... They would have gone for every uh, one euro they put on. They would have received back eight thousand seven hundred and eighty-seven. <laughs> if they placed a thousand, they would have got eight million back. Mm. That is a lot of drug deals. And and I want to stress, no one was ever. Everyone knows that game was fixed. You know, one of the owners has eventually said, "Yes, it was fixed," uh, but nobody's ever gone to jail for it. No. Even. The top fixers, if they ever get caught, don't go to jail for very long. And, and you can count virtually on uh, – the numbers are certainly less than 50, the athletes that have been caught uh, for fixing. So it's a very rich, rewarding field for organized crime to get into because the sanctions are so low. The money that you can make is so high and you know you can really do a lot of uh, you can make a lot of money very quickly with this. Yeah. One of the most interesting things I found in your book is when you study how uh, you fix a game, and you yes. do a lot of numbers on this. You've done real analysis yes. on this. Um, yes. Do you want to explain that? Because it was not the way I thought you would fix a game. Yes. Um, uh, and this is where I take off my hat as an investigative journalist, and I, I start talking uh, as an academic. Um, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, I, I, I was very fortunate to be accepted to Oxford. I was accepted at an amazing uh, school for informal governance. That's corruption, in, in other words, uh, corruption studies. And they really drilled me as they do at Oxford in statistics. So we came up with a way of identifying patterns in corrupted games. And uh, many were... Um, uh, not what you would expect. So, uh, for example, I had always thought that uh, last-minute goals, goals scored in the last 10 minutes or so, was a feature of a fixed match in a, in a soccer game. 
what we discovered actually was that in one type of fixing, the goals are always scored very early because it's just easier for them to get the fix settled in place right at the beginning of the game uh, rather than have to scramble at the end and take their chances that it will or will not happen. So that's some of the stuff that we did. The next book is actually uh, a book coming out uh, with the University of Toronto Press next year, which reveals much of the academic work that I did. All right. Uh, Good. Uh, so it's it gets into criminology theory. It gets into um, uh, motivations for players, how these things are put together. And this, I think, four or five chapters specifically on the tactics, uh, both of the players and of the fixers, and so how they do it. Mm. And then, of course, in good old academic terms, why they do it. You know, that that's mm. a really interesting question. If you look at the look at the work of guys like. You know uh, Robert Merton or Sutherland, and you know the, the the giants of the criminology. One of the things that they were discussing, at least Merton was, was if crime comes from people who don't have opportunity or status in society, so they seek other ways to gain that status and opportunity. Well, excuse me, but an athlete, you know, it's very difficult to have more status than an mm-hmm. athlete. So why the heck would an athlete risk uh, fixing a game uh, because of this? And so those are, you know, I get into that chap, I, I get into that in, in, in very close detail, in quantitative work, uh, and explain why they would do this. Mm-hmm. And it's the specific players seem to have a better chance of fixing than others because you actually explained that the referee, I think. Um, had a lower chance of success of making sure a game was fixed than players did. Um, actually, if you look at the the, the numbers, it, it's almost the same. Uh, mm. You know the. Uh, but you, you actually give an instance where the referee was there and he he gave a penalty with the intent of making sure this team won, but they missed the penalty. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, like um, I mean, look, the best way of fixing a game is if you get the entire team. Mm. And there's a famous uh, meeting uh, that takes place between. Asian fixers, European fixers, and uh, some uh, dodgy bookmakers. And they're in Vienna, and they're talking back and forth, and they come up with a system to rate the fixers. So they say, you know, the fixers say to the bookmakers, right, when we come to you with a one-star fix, it means we've just got, you know, the referee. If we come to you with a five-star fix, it means we got both teams. And, and, you know, we mean the entire management of both teams ready to play this thing out for you. And then two stars, a certain number of players, three stars, you know, goes on from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it easier then um, to make sure a team loses or to make sure a team wins? So if you're only going to choose one team, would you choose the team you want to win the game or the one to lose the game? Oh, you, you want the team to lose. I mean, because losing is a certainty or almost a certainty. Winning is much more difficult. So, so the, the holy grail for fixers and gamblers is certainty. And a lot of my research, a lot of my both academic and investigative research was, was put together using a, a data bank of um, transcribed phone calls. So I, I uh, got over 250,000 words of people actually being taped as they were fixing games, and then I analyzed those, uh, uh, you know, th- those conversations, and the, the concept of certainty runs through these gambling fixers 
conversation. I, I don't think they're I don't think they're aware of it. Uh, they may be or they may not be. Uh, but but you'll hear the discussion of certainty constantly in this conversations because they're putting big money down and they're trying to get as certain as they can. Mm-hmm. And trust comes into it too. You mentioned that as well. Massively. Massively. Trust, uh, look, to step back and get into um, you know, the theory for a second. Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm uh, now I'm one academic from, from a, a school that looks at the Russian mafia, uh, mm. Federico Varese, uh, another colleague, yes. Peter Hill. I just did. I just did uh, interview with Federico last week on that on yeah. his book. Yeah, um, uh, Diego Gambetta, the guy who put mm. it together, is the ex- or one of the experts on the Sicilian mafia. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of us that went through it, and 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 we discussed in great detail how you put together a corrupt deal. And so, uh, one of the key things that you're putting together is, tr- you know, is trust. Because if a corrupt deal goes down, it, you know, it doesn't work, well, what are you going to do? You can't go to a judge and say, you know, I bribed the referee and he, you know, he, he didn't you know, do what I told him to do. So you've got to build those trust things. And there's a whole series of trust mechanisms that they, they put into place. And again, there's a section in this upcoming book where I talk exactly about that and how the trust is built and what they use to build the trust into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that we've noticed too, even with the police, um, police corruption networks rely enormously on trust. They're not going to just approach anybody and say, hey, start paying money. They tend uh-huh. to only deal with people who they know are likely to pay. And they have this reputation. Reputation matters enormously. Yes. Yeah. And, and reputation for being an honest criminal. That's uh, right. You know, like, it, and, and that's a, it might seem like an oxymoron, but. But the best fixers are actually the most honest ones. And there's an example in Frankfurt, 2007. There was a Chinese guy, William Lim, who'd been operating for years, and and the transcripts of him in operation and working. He's working with a bunch of Balkan criminals, and the Balkan boys are always trying to rip off the players and always trying to rip off the coaches. And they, you know, they'll show up, and if they promise the players five thousand, they'll give them three thousand. Mm. And 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 the Chinese guy is saying, no, 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 we promised him five thousand. You got to pay him five thousand. And and you can see him. You you can see these guys who are frankly not very bright. The Balkan boys are just you know they're kind of thugs and, mm. and, and and not very bright guys. And and this honest criminal who's saying I want to establish a long term relationship with these guys. And if I've told them I'm going to pay X thousands of euros or whatever, I'm going to do it. And yeah. and it's it's you know the transcripts are fascinating to to, to hear these guys yeah. going back and forth and why. The Chinese guy is saying this is really important that we do it right. Yeah. And, okay. I've got to do the methodology question. How did you get this data? How did you get these transcripts? And also in the book, you're describing meeting people. How in the world yes. did you get access to these people in the first place? Right. Well, let, let's talk as an academic first and we'll move on to the investigative mm. journalist. Uh, first of all, I, 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 you know, I built a number of my own databases, uh, um, you know, and, and analyze those and um, was very fortunate. I had a guy named uh, Johan Graf Lambsdorff who's put together the data space for Transparency International, the Perceived Corruption Index, which ranks countries as how perceived they are to be corrupt in the world. And, you know, he's, he's an expert in this stuff. And he 
was brilliant in helping me construct the databases and understanding what I had and what I could ask of the database and what I couldn't ask of the database. So I had that. Two, I, I just went around and collected, as I said, uh, hundreds of thousands of words. Uh, I can't remember in the end how many, but it was well over 100, what I called confessions. And those were actual um, uh, you know, verbatim transcripts of people fixing a match. And so one chapter, which is already out in Federico Versace's Global Crime, is I use a Russian fixer, and they fixed him, they, they taped him six ways to Sunday as he tries to fix this game in the Russian League uh, back in 2004. And it's fascinating, because you can see all the mechanisms, and you can see the trust, and you can see all the stuff going in. So, I, you know, I had that, I had stuff Oh, we're just, I'm just losing you a bit there. I've got a bit of static on the line. Can you hear it on your end? No, I can't. No, I can't. So let me start again. Start again. Collecting, collecting what I call what I call fashion, fashion, fashion. Well, over, well over a hundred, 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 the earliest earliest was a guy who was fixing cricket matches in the Lords Cricket Match in London in 1806. And somebody has gone around and interviewed him in the 1840s and they talked about the mechanisms of the fixers for cricket. Are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry, I've just been getting static on this end of the line, so I hope it hasn't heard the recording. But anyhow, sorry, we'll continue. Um, well, uh, do you want me to, do, you want me to do another pickup? Oh, no, no, it's all fine. We'll just continue. So sorry to okay. the listeners to this. It may well have been something that was happening at my end that uh, if you didn't hear, it may not be in the recording. But- I, I, didn't hear, I didn't hear anything at all. Anyway, so I, I've got yeah. this. So, so we've got the numbers. We've got the words as well. And, that, you know, and I, I really wanted to, 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 to make sure – and there's, there's, there's a great line from Sherlock Holmes. Mm. He goes out to investigate match fixing goes out and investigates this and and somebody says well how are you going to you know dr watson comes says how are you going to investigate it this this fixing and he said we it's of such importance to so many theorists and so much of the popular press that we have to separate the framework of fact from the surmise and the conjecture Mm. and that was really you know Arthur Conan Doyle's words were what I used to direct my thesis, was I wanted the framework of fact. I, there's so much conjecture and surmise about match fixing that I wanted to separate it from there. I just wanted the facts. And so that's why I really pushed both the numbers and that we had the actual words to it. Mm. So that's what the academic work has been based on. Now, it's also based on over 220 interviews and including... Uh, I think it's 14 or 15 fixers, uh, either past fixers or current fixers. And and the truth of the matter is that fixing and corruption is so prevalent in Asian sport that most of these guys are not unknown. They, they are well-known. They are, um, you know, it, it, it's easy to identify them. Uh, I was surprised that they were so willing and ready to speak to me. And again, in the book, I discuss why I think that that was the case. But uh, there's a pivotal moment in the book that I discuss where I'm in a golf course and the guy is there with, you know, there's a beautiful woman fully clothed on the bed. There's a, um, you know, there's an aide camp. He's got phones and the phones are ringing uh, from an international sports tournament, uh, the Southeast Asia game. And he's just taking the calls. 
and and he's fixing the game right there, games mm. right there, mm. uh, and he's telling me, oh yeah, we got this game in the Bundesliga. Here, I'll tell you the score. He tells me the score of the game before it actually occurs, and and we're sitting there for the next hour as the phone calls come in from Germany with this game being fixed, mm. and finally, I I'm like. You know, look, what's the biggest game you've ever fixed? And he says, I don't know, what's bigger, the Olympics or the World Cup? <laughs> and, and as I said at the beginning of this, this conversation, you know, two things went through my head. Either, you know, the first one was, again, like the Russian mafia guy said, you know, I really hope I get out, out of this hotel bedroom alive. And two, is this the biggest bullshitter in the world? <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, telling me these stories about fixing. And so I very politely said, "Look, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I believe you. I don't, you know, I don't. I, I, I'm sure you can do it in Asia, but I don't think you can do it on the World Cup stage." And and it was a fascinating conversation because everything that he said in that conversation, I discovered later w- was true. Uh, you know, the players from Africa, from many of the former Soviet countries, don't get paid for playing in mm. the World Cup. And these boys show up, the fixers show up, and they say, "Don't lose all the games." You know, impress the agents. I know you want a better contract. You want to move up in the thing. So just when you're up against a really strong team, give us one half. Just lose the second half or lose the first half and do what you can for a half. And and, and then you, your biggest problem is walking back into your country with all the cash we're going to give you. <laughs> and that, that's going to sway people's minds. There's no doubt about it. Um, well, if you, you know... It, the thing that frustrates me is that FIFA and Interpol are, have now, you know, they really are the biggest bullshitters in the world because they're doing these, quote, education programs for the players. They're like, you know, talking about, you know, they're spending $20 million in Singapore, of all places, mm. to, to build a, quote, education center to stop fixing. I'm like, guys, just pay the players. Yeah. That removes 90% <laughs> of the, the fixing. Like, no pay player, if he goes to the World Cup or the Olympics, wants to fix a game. And yeah. if you pay him, and if you pay him or her, by the way, because it's been fixing at the Women's World Cup, and you pay them an incentive program so that every time they score a goal, instantly into their bank account goes ten or $20,000. And for every time a goalkeeper has a clean sheet, you know, they get mm. an extra 50000 60000 My goodness. That's a great incentive, and you could eliminate most of the fixing overnight. It's it's, it's not yeah. a matter of education. I mean, come no. on, come. Well, that that's a, something that's been known in, in corruption studies for years. That if you don't pay someone a living wage, they're going to make it up somehow. Well, and even like, the figures that you well, discuss in the book, the team's only getting twenty thousand dollars to spread between everyone in the team. Uh, well, well, that actually came that. I, I think you're thinking of Stephen Appiah, who said that uh, he took twenty thousand for winning a game right. uh, at the 2004 Athens Olympics. Uh, now the rest of his team, or the ones that I interviewed, all deny this. Uh, but but you know, Appiah said, "Look, I, every time I go to a tournament, I see these guys." Uh, in fact, the president of the Ghana Football Association said the same thing, as did most of the players and most of the officials. In fact, I can't think of a single Ghanaian official or player who didn't say these guys are approaching us all the time at the big mm. tournaments. So why they didn't, you know, why FIFA doesn't step in and ensure that the Ghanaians and the Cameroonians and the Ivory Coast team and the Nigerians and the South Africans and all these guys are not paid directly into their bank accounts. So there's, so no, there's no nonsense. 
And as I said, there's been a problem in 2010 with the uh, Nigerian team. The South African World Cup team, well, first of all, four of their games were fixed in the, in the run-up to the World Cup. And then they didn't agree on what they should pay the players until a, two days before the tournament was to start. Mm. I mean, like, you know, like what planet are these people on? They can build X number of stadiums. They can put in new transport infrastructure in Durban and Cape Town and Johannesburg. And they can't figure out what they're going to pay the players. Mm. Like, I, you know, come on. <laughs> I mean, this, you know, and, and you have this, you have this match fixing industry, these consultants that are now arising around the world, uh, you know, saying it's all about educating the players and blah, blah, blah. No, it's mm. not. It's pay the players. And by the way, pay the referees. Uh, mm. You know, it, it's outrageous that a referee should be on the field running around um, in these games that are worth literally hundreds of billions of dollars. And I'm not talking about the gambling industry. I'm talking about mm. sponsorship. I'm talking about the players' salaries. They are making split-second decisions. They are facing uh, enormous amount of criticism, occasional death threats from these lunatic fans. And they're not paid really well. They should yeah. just be paid hundreds of thousands. Of, you know, if, if you ref a game in the Champions League, which is one of the, you know, the biggest sporting tournaments in the world, and it's a it's a second group stage or it's or it's a quarterfinal or semifinal. You should be making at least a hundred thousand euro, without yes. question, absolutely yeah. without question. And they're not. And and for years they were lucky to make a thousand euro for doing those games. Mm. That's astounding. Well, look, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but uh, we'll do the traditional final question, and that's what are you working on now? You've told us about the book you've got coming out soon. Do you have another project in the works as well? Yes, I do. It, 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 sadly, it's an investigative journalist one, so I, I can't actually share that. Uh, oh, that's all right. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, look, I you know I, I'm, I'd be very interested. Uh, well, look, thank you very much um, for the interview, and we actually spent more time getting ready for the interview and checking technology <laughs> than we actually did in the interview. So I really appreciate your patience today. So thank you very much, Declan. You have been listening to new books in terrorism and organised crime. And Declan Hill discuss his new book, The Fix, about soccer and organized crime. I hope you enjoyed the program.